you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We are thankful you're here this morning. We're praying that we have an encouraging time in the Word of God together. And uh, we are jumping into Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're, we're a little bit over now, halfway through the book. As we complete this chapter, we'll definitely be halfway through the book this morning. And this book has been driving us to really evaluate what it means to live this life well, to live it properly, to have the right perspective. The truth is that most of us want to live a better lives. We long to live a better lives if possible and as much as impossible for us to accomplish that. We long to have more meaningful and satisfying and significant and purposeful lives. The culture around us, even the culture that rejects God, even sends us this message, the message that we're supposed to be living the best possible life we can. The culture tells us that we deserve the best. We deserve the best that this life in this world has to offer. The best homes, the best cars, the best jobs, the best schools, the best food, the best possessions. We tell our kids that they need to be the best versions of themselves possible and self-help books pump at us that it is possible to live the best version of ourselves here and now. Some um, even in evangelical circles, are promising for a very low fee of the cost of a book that we can live our best lives now. Life under the sun, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes has defined it, is life that is lived apart from God. It's life that holds out an illusion of what is best. The illusion that we can actually enjoy what is best apart from God. But once what this world and what is best is explored under the sun, it usually proves itself empty. That's the general truth or axiom that the preacher of Ecclesiastes has been driving home. You can search out all this world has to offer. You can seek your best life here and now, but what you will find is it will still leave you empty. It still will not be as satisfying as you thought it would be. It is vanity or striving after the wind, as the preacher has said, time and time again. But we have a way, as human beings, of avoiding the deeper questions of life. We live surface-level lives. And as a result, our lives are often a mile wide but only an inch deep. We lack the satisfaction we seek. We have lots of stuff in this world that we think is going to make our lives better, but we don't enjoy the substance of what truly makes this life better. And instead of asking what makes life better, we end up avoiding what ultimately will make life better. That's what the preacher is helping us do in this chapter this morning. We're going to go through the entire chapter, chapter 7. We'll look at it chunk by chunk this morning. But here, you need to see the preacher is calling us again to live deeper to live better. And that is a noble goal, to live a better life here and now, but it requires the proper perspective. You see, we are aware as followers of Jesus Christ, although it is hard and we forget this often, but this world is not our home. And while we cannot enjoy, let me say this very clearly, we cannot enjoy our best life now, for that life is yet to come, amen? We can certainly enjoy a better life here and now, if we follow the leading of the Spirit in the Word of God. How? That's the question that we need to answer. How can we enjoy and live our better life now? There's four ways from this text that we can live our better life now. And the first one is this, we're called to reflect regularly on the end of life. You want to live your better life now? Then it requires you to do some intentional consideration of the end of your life. Look at verses 1 through 6. Here's what the preacher says. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will do well to lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. 
For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Here, he really brings us back to the key theme of the book of Ecclesiastes that we've been looking at, uh, last things first. And it's fitting that kind of at the middle point of the book, he reorients our focus to the end. And he says, look, look, if you really want to live your better life here and now, you must look towards the end of your life and you must get in the habit of doing it regularly, frequently. Verse one gives us this kind of interesting little proverb. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. There's a parallel here that he's trying to draw out Parallel truths, ointment, precious ointment being compared to the day of birth. You say, what is the comparison there? Well, here what we see is that the world under the sun often values material possessions like precious ointment back in the ancient Near East in particular was heavily valued and a a display of great wealth. But here's the truth. Listen, just like in the ancient days, so is true today, that oftentimes material possessions are the way we we determine the value of our life instead of the actual life we live, the character and the content of that character. The world around us, and sadly often we too, we evaluate the success of a life by the possessions of life, by the things we have, the things we can attain, A good name, according to this text, however, is determined not, by the way, at the beginning of your life, but at the end of your life. Birth, it's said here, is like a precious ointment. It's it's valuable at, at the beginning, but really, the ultimate value of a life is not determined ever until the very end. The beginning of a life, the birth, is beautiful and it is precious, but it doesn't have the capacity. The very beginning, as you're holding a, a brand new baby, we've, many of us have had this experience in this room, holding a baby, does not tell you ultimately who that child will become, what they will do with your life, the significance and the, the purpose of the life that we hold in our arms. We cannot look at a little baby and see the character of that individual we hold in our arms. Precious ointment, like birth, doesn't indicate the kind of person someone is and will become. But here, what the preacher is drawing us to, this is the reality of death. You see, death gives us an opportunity to turn and reevaluate the life that preceded it. It's been said that we've been given two names, one that parents give us at our birth and the one that we earn for ourselves, which is known only at our death. You see, the end of your life will provide the content necessary to properly evaluate your life and mine. It's really here, you could say it like this, the pithy saying that we have in our our contemporary culture is this, it's not how you start, but it's how you finish. And if you are concerned this morning about living properly, about living life better, then you need to look towards the end of your life to figure out how that's going to be accomplished. Verse two, notice what it says. It says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living, look at this, will lay it to heart. That's what he's getting at. And he's saying, look, it's better, listen, to go, instead of going to a festival, to go to a funeral. There's greater value ultimately found at a funeral because it allows you to, again, understand the plight of all mankind, that that you will one day be there too, that this is the fate of every single one of us, and the living lay this to heart. They they think about it carefully, they process it diligently, and they use it to sift their life and to direct their life. Here he tells us that the thought of death, listen, is not torture, but instead it is to be a teacher. It is to instruct us on how to live, not to cripple us from living. Rather than death being something that we fear, which many of us do, the regular reflection of our own death can actually produce a better life here and now. And the sooner that we come to terms with our death, the wiser our life has the chance to become. The more enjoyment we can find in this life because we are actually living it with the proper perspective. You know, every funeral really anticipates our own. And our death informs our life. Psalm 39 verse four says this, O Lord, make me know, it's on the screen behind me, 
I think. There it is. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Do you see that? The measuring of our days is known only by first determining the end, that reality of death. And verses 3 to 4 are this first section here, they emphasize the same point, don't they? Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Do you see that? By reflecting carefully on death and by actually considering it, that sorrow initially that death has the tendency to produce in each one of us actually has the potential to lead us to greater gladness and enjoyment. This isn't talking about some kind of wallowing in misery. This isn't talking about that kind of sorrow where we walk around constantly, you know, contemplating our death in sadness of heart all the time, discouraged and despairing. That's not what it's talking about. Verse four, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. See, what prevents us from contemplating death carefully? What's the hindrance to us? I think the first thing is, is fear. I think oftentimes we don't want to think about death because we're driven so much by fear. Now listen, the thought of the, the way in which we may die is not pleasant to think about, and that's not what this is getting after either. But oftentimes, even as followers of Jesus Christ, of those who know that death is not the end, the thought of death can strike a lot of fear in our hearts. It can be crippling to many of us who are not exposed to death on a regular basis. In the ancient culture, death was something that was normative. It was something they experienced on a regular basis. Even 100 years ago, if somebody died in your family, you'd lie them out on your dining room table for a few days. Think about that. There was constant exposure to death, and here in our culture, we're so insulated from death, the only death that most of us experience is, is in movies, you know, mainstream media that pumps to us a vision of death that is often gruesome and unhelpful, but is really distant from us. You know, I, I used to really despise the idea of an open casket funeral. I didn't like the thought of having to look at, at a dead body. And I know this sounds a little bit morbid to some of you, but come on, bear with me a little bit. This is what the text is teaching us, okay? But there's something to be said about being forced to look at a, a body that is no longer alive in the physical sense, where the soul has departed. And, and to look at that body and to realize, listen, that however long or short that person lived, However long or short we have to live, each one of us is going to meet that same end. And I think the fear of death often prevents us from truly contemplating the reality of our own death. And fear ultimately is a lack of faith in God. It's a lack of trust that he is actually in charge of our lives and our future and our eternity. But the second thing I think that this text specifically speaks to when it comes to an obstacle to us considering our own death is this. Listen, it's the opposite of fear. It's fun. Fun often prohibits us from experiencing the thoughts of death. You see, we, we inundate our lives with entertainment and pleasure and fun and festivities. That's why he uses this word here, mirth. Did you know this? And then in verse five later, he talks about the song of fools. And then in verse six, he talks about the laughter of fools. You, you see what's happening here, right? This is the person who wants to get the thoughts of death and the reality of the life they live out of their mind. They just want to focus on the here and now. They want the pleasures of this life, listen, to mask the potential death that they will one day face. We can be guilty of filling our life, listen, with distractions, with pleasure, with consumption, with possessions, with song, with mirth, and with lots of laughter, which by the way, um, the preacher here is not against those things in the rightful context. He's against those things masking and preventing us from seeing clearly what we must learn to see and contemplate. We fill our lives and minds with good things, even good gifts that God has given us so that we don't have to think about the hard things in this life. How many times, listen, when we're going through hardships in this life, our answer is to escape them by fleeing to things that dull the pain. 
This is why a drug addiction and alcohol addiction and sexual addiction, things like this are so rampant in our culture. People are struggling to deal with the hardships of life. They're struggling to, to wrestle listen, with the emptiness that this life often produces within them. And so they flee to things that are going to give them temporary pleasure to mask, to mask the reality of what they must come face to face with. But wisdom, according to this text, does not use sad things to avoid life. This is so good for my heart to hear. This is so good for your heart to hear. You see, wisdom uses sad things to learn about life. Not just death, listen, but struggles and circumstances and trials and hardships. God puts them into your life for a variety of different reasons. Many of those reasons I don't know and you don't know. And we will never understand until we're at home with Jesus in heaven. Amen? But there are some things we know the scriptures do teach us about the hard things in life. And that's this, that God allows them into our lives and he desires that we learn from them. That both death and hardship can actually, listen, breed and cultivate within us greater joy and satisfaction in this life if we view it correctly. Uh, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He, He describes the problem of pain, but he writes these words. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but listen to this, but he screams to us in our pain. He says pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. (laughs) The very thing we struggle and we strive to avoid in this life is one of the greatest means God is trying to use to get our attention, to wake us up to the trivial, superficial ways that we're living our life and to press us into something deeper and something more meaningful, which, listen, will lead to far more enjoyment. The goal here, again, it's not to be sad, it's not to mope around, we're not to be a hopeless, half-hearted, discouraged Christians, but instead to engage sadness. Here's Here's what the word of God is calling us to this morning, to engage with the hard things, the sad things, the painful things in this life, to take them to heart and to ask this question, what is this trying to teach me? What is God trying to teach me through this about how to truly live better? There is a contemplation of death and sadness that moves us away from the kind of laughter and mirth that helps us avoid and escape life and instead moves us into, again, a deeper enjoyment of life. In verse 6, he gives us this fascinating picture, and he's playing off of, again, verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise, the correction. Listen, this text is calling us to correction, but I want you to see this. The most specific correction that we are being rebuked here with today is this correction. Stop running past the hardship and problems of life and start looking at them as God's tool to teach you how to live better. And then he gives this this interesting illustration, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. You see, he says that mirth, that kind of happiness and laughing off of the life's, life's problems and circumstances, that just the power of positive thinking is enough for you to deal with this life, he says it's like the crackling of thorns under a pot. If you just throw a a bunch of thorn bushes into a fire, what you notice is this, they make a loud noise. It sounds like they're accomplishing something significant, but the reality is they burn up quickly and before you know it, they're gone. That's the imagery he wants us to have for the person who does not hear, not only rebukes in general, but specifically this rebuke. The person who doesn't like being corrected on the way they're living is like this kind of a person. The person who won't take seriously the end of their life and and use it as a tool to evaluate how they live this life. Listen, this person is like a, a crackling and cackling thorns in a fire. Listen, their life will ultimately burn up quickly and it will be gone before they know it and it will have little to no value. It will sound impressive. It will sound like it's doing something unique, but in the end, it will be found out to be worthless. It's like the chaff in Psalm 1. It's blown away by the wind. I think of this often when when people are being challenged with God's work, word, excuse me, and, and being rebuked by God's word. Perhaps you see this especially with children. Isn't this really an apt description of a teenager here? 
Are you trying to help them see how they're supposed to live their life well? And, and every child, like, and, and listen, the, the longer you have kids, the more you've seen you did this in your youth too, right? Where, where, where as a youth, you believe you know everything. You believe you don't need correction. You believe your parents don't know what they're talking about, right? They're like 20 years older than me. How could they know what, I, what I'm going through? But you see, receiving a rebuke with humility, patience, and willingness to change marks the wise. Laughing off a rebuke Laughing off correction that God is bringing into your life is a way, listen, of sinfully dismissing truth. It's like brief flames, little heat, lots of noise that leads to nothing. Listen to what Proverbs 12 verse 1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. The Bible said it, not me, okay? I'm just quoting the Bible. For those of you who don't like the word stupid and tell your kids don't say stupid, you're going to have to grapple with this text sometime, okay? But can you just hear, hear, listen, hear how strongly that exhortation is to us. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Listen, you should want, if you don't have people in your life who tell you the truth, you're missing out. You do not love knowledge. You love yourself. You love your own way. Listen, but if you love correction, if you have people in your life and you invited them into your life and said, listen, I need your correction. I need you to help me see what I don't see. Listen, you are a wise individual and it will go well for you. If you hate reproof, it is stupid. So dumb, and yet so many of us live without people in our lives who will give us that kind of correction. Wise people will say everything, by the way, that Ecclesiastes has said to us up to this point. They will teach us not to live for today, but for eternity. You see, living your better life now is about realizing that your best life is later. Putting last things first. You know, I was speaking to a friend of mine this week on a, on a conference call with a group of pastors and um, this friend of mine has just recently been diagnosed with lymphoma, a form of cancer, and uh, he's in the process right now of figuring out how long he has to live. And, um, and right now, there, there's a real sense that it's probably not going to be that long. They're not sure yet, and, and it, it may be treatable, but the reality is, is you know, he's a little older in life, and he was, just, he was talking to us. We were going through this conference call, and, and, and it was amazing. Like, it was amazing as we were talking briefly at the beginning about just the diagnosis. He's waiting on the doctors to get back to him, and he and his wife have been praying, and their kids have been praying, and we were asking how they're doing. And, you know, we, we began to pray together just about a lot of different things. But I, I, in the moment, listen, I, I saw in him something I'd never seen before in him. I saw a softness. I saw an emotion, emotion side of him that I've never seen before. There was a brokenness in his prayers. There was a deeper sense of pleading in his prayers. You know, there's something about contemplating the shortness of your life and the reality of your impending death that, that produces, listen, a softness in your heart and a softness to your prayers. But, but as we talked about a lot of different things, as we ended the call, it was amazing. He, he just, he pauses. We're all saying goodbye. He stops and through tears and choking back, he says, men, he's like, live every day for Christ. Live every day for Christ. Live every day for Christ. I mean, I got off the call and all I could think of was like, there is somebody, listen, who is encountering the reality of their death and now has a newfound perspective on the way that they're supposed to live and is exhorting, listen, exhorting me and now through me to you, exhorting us, listen, to consider the end of your life. Think carefully about it. It's coming and you never know when it's going to be here. And to live every day as if it may actually be your last, as if today I may stand before the presence of the king that we have just sung about and stand before him to give an account for my life. How are you living every day right now? I've had this thought running through my heart and mind as I've, I've been really, really just hit hard with this text this week. When I die, will my life be an example or will it be a cautionary tale? When you die, will your life be an example for people to follow in godliness and Christ-likeness or will it be a cautionary tale of how not to live? This is a profound call to our souls a call to consider regularly the end of our life so that we might live our better life now. Secondly, do this, respond wisely to the circumstances of life. 
respond wisely to the circumstances of life. If you want to live your better life now, you contemplate the death and it begins to shape the way you live in the present and towards the, the future. And that then calls you and I to react properly in each and every given situation and circumstance of life. We're called to act not with foolishness, but with wisdom. And 7 through 14 gives us um, these better statements and these contrasts to help us consider that there is a wise way and a foolish way to live. Look at the very first verse, verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This really is a call to respond wisely. And in verse 7, he kind of unpacks this idea of, of those who are truly wise, and the contrast is intended to be given here uh, towards those who are fools. The oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The, the wise and the foolish, first of all, the wise man looks at the world and he sees, he sees wisdom being fleshed out, and he sees foolishness. He sees hurt and oppression he sees difficulty, difficulty and, and as he seeks wisdom, he's driven into madness. As he looks at the problems of this world, he sees both wisdom and folly. He sees both maturity and immaturity, even in God's common grace in the world around us. By the way, really this passage, it really contrasts with us. We can kind of view it like this, uh, looking at somebody who's incredibly immature and somebody who's very mature. So as you go through this, maybe you can evaluate your life kind of with this grid in mind. Is this showing me that I am a mature follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, or am I actually very immature according to what this text has to say about my life? Amidst all the foolishness we encounter, beware, listen, listen, beware that you and I, we beware that we do not respond to foolishness with foolishness. That's what the very first verse is setting us up to consider. Don't look at the foolishness of the world and respond in like manner. We can easily, if we're honest with ourselves, move away from wisdom into folly. Even those with the greatest amount of wisdom can make the most foolish decisions and mistakes. I wonder if Solomon was writing this at the end of his life, and he was thinking back over his own example of this. A man with supernatural, divinely given wisdom lives his life dispensing wisdom, proverb after proverb, decision after decision, judgment after judgment, people flocking from all the corners of the globe to hear him wax eloquently about everything and anything they possibly could, to just simply sit at his feet and learn from him. And yet at the end of his life, as he looked back, the wisest man with supernatural wisdom who definitely loved God, consider that in this equation, had become a fool of fools. Had had his heart turned away from worshiping the one true God. This is a powerful reminder that even, listen, even if you're in a place of maturity today, you can slide into immaturity in no time if you're not careful. And verse 8 tells us really the difference between a wise person and a fool. And here's what it says. Listen, the wise person has a long view. The fool has a short view of life. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Two parallel thoughts, once again, patience and pride, uh, demonstrating, listen, those who are, and, and illustrating really, those who have a long view, that's the patient person. They're able to look at the difficulties and the struggles and the challenges of life and the oppression and injustice and the sin that pervades, and they're able, listen, to not react inappropriately. 
But the person with pride, the fool, has a very short view. They react flippantly. They react quickly. They react for the here and the now, not the then and the there. This is how we can know foolishness is set in and not wisdom. Ask yourself this question as you look at the challenges and circumstances of life that you often face, and perhaps, most importantly, the hardships, the difficulties, the things that are are really demonstrating to you the power of sin and the corruption of this world. Do you react in the moment every time? Do Do you react with pride, thinking you know best, thinking you can solve this problem right now? Or do you react with patience and calmness, with prayer, and deliberation, and seeking counsel. We are reactionary, many of us by nature, short-sighted, consumed with the moment. Again, I I picture the parallel of immaturity here, being a child, a child who lives for the pleasures of the moment, a child who wants to appease their their, uh, pleasure and their, their desires right now, right away, because life is hard. Listen, life is painful. So often we run and do the same thing. We're so often characterized by impatient pride. 1 Kings 20 verse 11 gives us a powerful picture and reminder of this as well. And the king of Israel answered, tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. I love that imagery. Don't be like the person who's strapping on his armor and boasting before the battle has even begun. Be like the person, right, who's finished the battle. They're taking their armor off. They know the victory has been there. They're looking at the end, not at the beginning. They're not overly confident at the beginning. They're just trusting. They're patient. They're wise. And at the end, when the armor comes off, that's when the confidence kicks in. Verse 9 tells us that there's a difference between wisdom and folly in this and how we respond to life circumstances. Either listen by controlling emotions or being controlled by emotions. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. The picture here is, again, you can't fight sin with sin. You can't fight pride with more pride. Anger acts in many of our lives, doesn't it, like an addictive drug. Each time we use it, we increase our dependence on it. It begins to settle in. It begins to take up residence in our lives. Anger becomes bitterness. It goes to seed. It begins to infect every corner and crevice of our lives. It becomes a normal part of who we are without us even realizing it. That's why a lot of us can look at angry and grumpy people and realize that there's something wrong. There's somebody who's always angry. Not that they have fits of anger, but the the one-time fits of anger have actually produced now an angry individual. And very often, they can't even see it. They're so used to it. They're so used to taking the hit of that drug of anger. They don't know what it's like to live without it. It begins to own and to control. Many of us need to guard against responding to the circumstances of life in our emotional state. We need to give time to process and instead take our emotions and line them up according to the word of God. To go to people who are going to help us process our emotions, who will be sympathetic to how we feel in the moment, but will allow truth to prevail in the moment. Who will gently and graciously come alongside us and say, brother or sister, I know how you're feeling. I see how difficult this is and I'm going to love you through this, but let's take the way you're feeling and let's go to the word of God and let's make sure that we are responding appropriately and wisely the way that God would call us to respond in the midst of this situation. The next way that responding wisely is identified here is with contentment and not complaining. Look at verse 10. It says, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. This is the fool who longs for the good old days. You ever have somebody in your life who's just consumed with the past? Like they're overly nostalgic about the past. Like, oh, back in my day, things were so much better. Like, oh, I I know people, I talk to people even here and now, like, wouldn't it be awesome to go back and live like in the 60s? Like that's where it was really at. No, not really. Like it was so much better back then. No, it wasn't. (laughs) 
Did you know every generation longs for previous generations? Every generation does this. They look back at previous generations and say, oh, it was so much better back then. But you see, eventually you get back to a point where everybody has said the same thing and you realize that this is not a past problem, it's a human problem. Well, the 90s at least, that was better. No, it wasn't. I lived through that. That was crazy. Someone once said this, those who believe the old ways and old days were better have a bad memory and a great imagination. It's amazing how we forget, isn't it? Flying into nostalgia, listen, only keeps you from dealing with what you need to deal with now. Do you realize that? It's another way of escaping the problems of life. We just convince ourselves that to go back to a different time would have been easier or better. It's a way of escaping our problems, not actually engaging with our problems. It's a way to make us feel better about life instead of wrestling through the tragedies and the trials of life a better way. So many of us believe wrongly that the problems of today did not exist back then, but the preacher in Ecclesiastes has told us, look, there's nothing new under the sun. There's just nothing new. We do now what they did then, only we express our sinful, scheming hearts in different forms. You see, the answer to our problems isn't getting God to change our circumstances. We know this, don't we? It's getting God to change us. It's not living in the past, but learning from the past. Finally, in in verse 11 through 14, he tells us this, that if you want to respond wisely, you need to operate, listen, with faith, not fear. In verse 11 through 14, he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. He's saying, look, there is a benefit to wisdom for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. But listen to what he's saying here. Before you think that this is, oh yeah, see, wisdom is the answer to it all. He's saying this, like wisdom has limitations. It's like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge, which he's already told us are incomplete complete. And he says, consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Do you see what he's saying here again? Like wisdom, again, it has its limitations. And in the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. He's actually telling us, listen, that the wise person realizes the limitations of wisdom. The wise person doesn't believe that uh, wisdom is the answer to all his problems. You can't make crooked what God has made crooked straight. You can't fix your own problems most of the time, let alone the bigger problems of this world. Just notice that he uses the word in this little section here, consider a couple of times. The idea here is, listen, you need to pay attention to this. You need to really grasp this in your heart and in your soul. The world we live in is crooked. It's bent. And you see, that reminds us that God, in response to human sin and rebellion, gave the world over to crookedness. The world now is, is frustrating, it's fleeting, and it's, it's transient. And that really describes the nature of this life. It is frustrating, it is fleeting, and it is transient. It is crooked, it is broken, it is distorted. And that crookedness is God's judicious verdict on our sinful condition. You want to try to find purpose and meaning in life apart from me, God says? Go ahead. Go, go search it out, go, go find out what you can, go after wisdom, go after knowledge, go after pleasure, go after possessions, go after everything you can in this world and find out that it will leave you empty in the end. Find that it will not fulfill the longings of your heart. You see, all of this is pointing us to remember that only he can provide those things. And here, out of fear, we can foolishly attempt to try to play God. 
We can try to take control of our lives in the adversity we face, in the circumstances of our lives. We can play God, or we can wisely choose to let God be God. We can trust him instead, by faith instead of by fear taking matters into our own hands. So how do we do that? I think one of the key ways is by cultivating a heart of gratitude and praise. Cultivating a heart of, of true contentment in, in God and you'll notice here in verse 14, he talks about the day of adversity and the day of prosperity. And here he, he calls us to remember that in the day of prosperity, we need to be joyful. But in the day of adversity, we need to consider that God has made the one and the other, right? You think of Job, the, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There is to be this disposition of gratitude and praise that captures every area of our life. Not just the good, but the hard as well. We need to see that God has allowed both one and the other, that God has a purpose in both the one and the other. It does us no good to simply try to overcome the challenges and adversity of life on our own and in our own strength. God is faithful in both, is what this text is reminding us. You can trust him in both. You can grieve. You can search out uh, answers. You can ask questions of God. You can wrestle with God. You can work it out as much as possible, and you can try to come to terms with it, but in the end, there are certain things you will never know and understand, and that must be okay with you because you know the God who is over it all. We were created to live in tension. We are created to live in mystery. We're created to understand that we are finite and that he and he alone is infinite. We cannot know it all, but we can stand on this truth this morning that no matter what happens in our lives, God holds on to us and he maintains his purposes for us. Faith in God's control, not fear of not being in control. That's how we live wisely in this life and respond wisely to all of life's circumstances. The third thing we ought to do to live our better life now is this, resist daily the pride of life. And this really does feed into uh, verses 15 through 18. You see, sometimes we find ourselves wanting to take control and there is a warning in this passage about the pride of trying to play God or the pride of simply dismissing and avoiding God. In verses 15 through 18, it says this, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Here the preacher identifies really two forms of pride. We can kind of classify them like this. There is the self-righteous person or the self-indulging person. Both are forms of pride, which I hope you will see. But in verses 15 and 16, he talks about a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and a wicked man who prolongs his life. Things don't always seem fair. But you see what he's getting at here is this, that there is a danger in the self-righteous. And the danger is this, listen, that, that you begin to believe that somehow, because I have been obedient to God, because I have been righteous, that somehow that guarantees God's favor upon my life, that my life will then be prolonged, right? We play this game with God in our self-righteousness, where all of a sudden we're met with adversity or pain or tragedy, and oftentimes, listen, God reveals self-righteousness in the moment, because here's what happens. Wait, we're good with God until adversity hits, and then we look at God and we say, God, I thought we were good. I thought I was doing everything I was supposed to do, God. How could you let this happen to me then? How could you do this after all I've done for you? Do you hear that? That's a self-righteous heart that believes somehow in our goodness that we've earned from God things that we have no right to say we've earned. 
The biblical illustration of this is, is in the parable of the prodigal son, which isn't so much about the son, sons, but about the father. But it provides to us two very different individuals. It actually provides for us, by the way, the, the double sin of pride, the self-righteous, and the self-indulgent, both of them embedded in that story. This is what this preacher is talking about. You see, the self-righteous is the son who stays with the father, right? He's the Pharisee. He's the one at the end who is furious that the father showed grace to the rebellious son. How dare you slaughter the fattened calf for him? I have been with you all this time. Don't you see what he's saying? I have earned your favor and kindness. I have earned a reward for my life. How dare you not give me what I deserve? Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? He's not saying don't seek righteousness or don't seek wisdom. He's saying, listen, be careful that you don't slide into the pride of believing that you are truly righteous and truly wise. But again, on the flip side of that, he warns against the pride of being self-indulgent. This is the person in verse 17 and 18 who says, okay, fine, if righteousness doesn't get me anywhere, if the righteous dies like the fool, and sometimes the fool prospers more than the righteous, well then, what am I doing trying to follow the rules anyway? <laughs> Just give me my stuff and let me go live my life. This is the other son. Give me my inheritance, God. Who cares about you? I wish you were dead so I could live my life the way I want to. Now give me my blessings and get out of the way. Such a wicked, sinful attitude. But listen, listen, no more wicked than the first. And so what we see here is the lawless, irreligious person being described. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Be careful, listen, be careful. Your foolishness could lead to your death and your demise just as quickly. And you could be gone in a minute because of your foolish, sinful actions. Not only that, have you considered the end of your life? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. He warns you, listen, if, if you've kind of been like, whatever, there's no point in obeying God if it's not gonna lead me to, to enjoying the things I want here and now. By the way, that's usually self-defined. You want what you want here and now. You've told God what you believe you deserve and if you don't have it, if, if he doesn't give it to you and you just run to do, fine, I'm gonna run, my, that, that, is, that is a huge, huge problem. Listen, it is massive pride on your part. Don't think you can throw away the pursuit of righteousness believing that there are no consequences for your sinful behavior. Part of what the preacher is telling us is that under the sun, life is hard. Listen, life is not always fair, right? We, we get this. I mean, life is not always fair. It doesn't always make sense. We can't always figure it out. But prideful rejection of God when life doesn't feel fair is not the right answer. And can I just say this? Listen, prideful rejection of God is especially not the answer when you are facing the most challenging moments of your life. Those are the moments when God, listen, is staring at you in the face and is asking the question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you really love me? Or will you turn your back on me when things get hard, Peter? Do you love me? That's what God is saying in the hard times. Listen, if you want to take anything away from the adversity, every one of us is going to face challenges in adversity. You may be in the thick of it right now. Some of you, I'm looking across, I know some of you have been through just unbelievably heart-wrenching and grueling, grueling things in your life. You have. And I just want, I want you to know, listen, that God has such great love for you and cares for you and he sympathizes with your weakness, but he desperately wants you to cling to him, not flee from him in the moments of weakness in your life. He wants to pull you so close. I've been reading through Job in part of my devotional time and, and I'm kind of in the, the middle when his friends are advising him and 
I've been struck at the amount of times where, where Job, in the midst of adversity, is saying things like, I will not sacrifice my integrity. As hard as this is, I'm not going to turn my back on God. I'm going to trust him in the midst of the pain. Listen, we shun self-righteousness and we shun self-indulgence. That's what we're called to do in this life, to resist the daily pride of life. This is part of the key to living a better life now. Don't respond in prideful resistance or prideful indulgence. Believe in your life that behind every pain, God is there, letting nothing and no one separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Believe that behind every joy, God is there generously and graciously giving us something to rest in, reminding us again that he is faithful even when it's hard. And you see, the result of this kind of thinking leads to living a better life. Verse 18, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. From both of what? The lives that both end up in some kind of destruction. He's saying, you want to really prosper? You want to really prosper? Not just talking financially and physically because, listen, none of those things are guaranteed and if it didn't happen for Jesus, it's likely not going to happen for you. The answer for how we live in both prosperity and adversity is this, not pride but humility. We live to please, we live to please him regardless of what we face in this life. We live, listen, more like Job than we do like Judas. Fourth and final way that we can live our better life now is this. Refuse daily to believe you have arrived in this life. Verses 19 through 29, the preacher says this, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, uh, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is, in, that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Here he begins by telling us to beware that we start to believe that we've somehow arrived in this life. Verses 19 and 20, he tells us again that wisdom is good, but it has its limitations. He's really describing here this idea that there's no one who's perfect. You can do a whole lot in this life. You can attain a whole lot. Wisdom gives strength to the wise, certainly. More than 10 rulers who are in a city. He says, look, there's this great value in having great wisdom. But then notice verse 20. But surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. You can be as wise as wise can get, but you still have to struggle with the reality of your own sinfulness. The really significant question is not... By the way, why do bad things happen to good people, is it? You know, people ask that question all the time. It's one of the questions I get from unbelievers all the time. They, they, they have to wrestle with the, the thought and the problem of evil and injustice and why good people seem to suffer while, while wicked people seem to prosper in this life. The real question to ask is why does anything good happen at all? Because what he describes here, listen, is a crooked and broken generation in a crooked and broken world, wickedness, lawlessness. By the way, the wicked and the lawless people have an easier time accepting this than the religious, that the idea that um, good things shouldn't happen to anybody, that nobody deserves good things. You see, the, the former, 
can revel in their unrighteousness and the glory and, and glory in their shame. They're like, yeah, who cares? You're just going to live life. It's for the moment. If good things don't happen to anybody, if there's no rhyme or reason to it, who cares? But the Pharisees, the self-righteous, really struggle with this idea because they're so busy trying to prove their worth and value and goodness to God, they can't grasp that then their life would not go well for them. I believe early on there's this... This text just reminds me of so many different things, but this idea, listen, that even the wisest and most righteous people are still filled with sin. We have this propensity to prop people up on pedestals in our culture and even in the evangelical world, and I've talked about this before, but I need to say it again. I mean, listen, the best of men are men at best. We've got to be really careful when we start believing that certain people never sin, that certain people are immune to the struggles of this life and the falls that can happen so quickly in this life. I mean, I, I remember, I, I believe it was really early on in the life of this church. I mean, there, there would be um, women in this church, they'd go up to my wife, Sarah, and they'd be asking her questions like, you know what, like, wow, it must be really amazing to be married to Ian. I'm like, yeah, of course. <laughs> and, and, and usually she'd ask something like, well, well, like, yeah, it's okay, but, like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> oh, you know, like, you know, like, he, like, he probably, like, like never sins, right? <laughs> to which she would burst out laughing, and she couldn't wait to tell me the story. <laughs> like, the struggle in sin is real in every single one of us. The battle with the flesh is very real. Paul in Romans 7 makes this, this fight and the struggle so abundantly clear. All you have to do is start hanging around somebody you know, for more than a day and you find out that their life is filled with inconsistencies. It's filled with flaws. I mean, the, the sin nature is so powerful and it's a constant battle in this life by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God to make any ground in victory, isn't it? The hard truth is this, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's what the scriptures teach repeatedly, over and over. That means not me, and it certainly means not you, right? Like, just, just pay close attention to what comes out of your mouth over the next 24 hours, and you will see that you are indeed still struggling with sin. He says in verse 21 and 22, do not take to heart all the things that people say. Listen, we get really self-righteous and get bent out of shape quickly, right? Um, when we hear that people have been saying mean things about us, especially if they're lower than us on the totem pole. But look at verse 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. We need not look at the world to see how destructive sin is. We simply need to look in the mirror, and just when we think we've arrived, we open our mouths again, right? And go oh, back to square one. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. Again, listen, the wise know the limits of wisdom. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? There are certain things we can never know and we're not supposed to know. In fact, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know, right? That old adage is absolutely true, and it should be. And the people who haven't embraced that, they're the ones most susceptible to falling prey to self-righteousness. Thinking they've arrived, they will find the fall hard. Pride goes before the fall. In verse 25, I turn my heart to know. Look at, look at the language that he uses here in this pursuit. He stacks up these words, to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm going to the ends of the earth to accumulate wisdom and I can't figure it out is what he says. To know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Why is this world so broken? Why is it so corrupt? Why is sin so pervasive? And I find something more bitter than death. And then he goes on to give us this illustration. But you see, the more he explored here to search out the answers, the more convinced he became of this very profound truth that every one of us needs to grapple with. The depravity of the human heart is real. You see, in one way or another, the troubles of life always come back to this one prevailing problem, the problem of sin. This is the inescapable dilemma that the preacher constantly is pointing us to. And again, he gives us this example in verse 26 in following. And it's kind of like the Proverbs 7 picture. Again, the, the woman who lures a young man away and tempts him towards sin. And all over again, this picture is painted. A foolish, sinful woman is described here. 
but so, don't mistake this, is a foolish, sinful man. And the point here isn't to suggest, by the way, um, that women are greater sinners than men. It, it kind of gives the appearance of, of, of it kind of leaning that way. You know, he's, he's found some wise man, but not a woman. D- don't miss what he's saying. He's, he's not saying, by the way, th- I, th- I think the, the, the reality is, is this can be easily reversed. Like, just follow the illustration. He says, hey, look, and in one sense, it doesn't matter. You could, you could find wise people, but the reality is, is the problem of sin is still pervasive in every person. But the point here, again, it's not to suggest that women are greater sinners than men, but I want you to see this. This is really important. You say, why did he frame it this way then? He's drawing an intentional connection back to the Garden of Eden. This whole book has echoes of, of Eden flowing throughout of it, rippling throughout it. And he kind of, in a veiled way, reminds us, listen, of how the serpent enticed Eve and then Eve eventually enticed Adam and he lays out his conclusion about both men and women in general. And while the roles can be reversed, the problem is universal. The overarching point here is this. Sure, every once in a while, someone righteous flees sin. Somebody is wiser than others. They run away from the challenges of sin in their life, but even that person cannot escape the presence of sin in his own life all the time. We are broken by sin, and in in this life under the sun, we must encounter the one who is above the sun. And in verse 29, He closes this section by saying these words, see this alone I found. And here it is, hear the echoes of Eden? That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright. He made man sinless. He made man to live in relationship with him. But despite the original uprightness of man, sin has entered into the equation and sin has corrupted all of humanity and yes, indeed, all of creation. Man's sin, according to this verse, is perverse. What was once upright is now perverse. It is the opposite of upright. It is deliberate. It was sought out. It is universal. The they that is used there describes all of mankind. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is multifaceted. There are many schemes of sin, and we see this in our very own lives, let alone in the world around us. But the hope from this text is where it leads us to, not where it leaves us here. You see, God had a counter scheme, a counter plan, a plan to restore the uprightness of mankind that was lost in the fall in the Garden of Eden. A plan to bring back the Garden of Eden, a better garden, better yet to bring man back to the better garden. That God would send the upright man, Christ Jesus, to fulfill his plan to redeem sinful humanity, but this man would be incapable of sin because he would be both fully man and fully God. You see, this text reminds us that none are righteous but the man Christ Jesus. And his righteousness can be yours. You can have everything required to live a better life now and into eternity enjoy the best life to come. You can have the righteous life of Jesus Christ credited to your account, listen, not by working hard enough, not by being good enough, not by obeying enough, but by faith in his obedience, not in yours. Our human problem has been met with the great divine solution. It is the only way to be made right with God. And the preacher here establishes our guilt because he longs to point us forward to Christ, the one who absolves all of our guilt because he took the penalty for all of our unrighteousness and lawlessness and sin upon the cross on his own body. Amen? See, that's the hope we have. Whatever sin consumes your life this morning, whatever sin is pervasive, whatever tragedy and trial you face, listen, do not mistake God's patience in your life for his approval of your behavior. God is righteous and he hates sin and it grieves his heart 
and he calls you to repent. Listen, the fact that your life contains good things does not indicate that you are anything other than the recipient of God's common grace. His common grace, though, is actually pointing you to his specific and special grace. God wants you to see that he is good and gracious when you don't deserve it because he wants you to see the climax of that goodness and graciousness in the gift he offers in Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team up and I'm going to encourage you to prepare your hearts to respond now in song. I hope you get the sense that God is pointing you today and calling you today to enjoy your better life now. And if you are an unbeliever here today, you can have that by taking the gift of Jesus Christ by faith, repenting of your sins, and trusting in his perfect righteousness. And every day, listen, here's how we live our better lives now. We follow the principles laid out here in God's word. But each and every day, we take a hold of the better life that we have, the life of Jesus Christ. Each and every day, we're called to live by faith in him. We're called to fix our gaze upon Jesus Christ who raised us from the dead and who sets us free from the power of sin and death. And Paul, he frames it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 through 9. He says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether, listen to this, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please God. Let me invite you to stand to your feet and let me remind you that we can enjoy our better life now when we know that our best life is coming. Let's put last things first. In fact, let's put the very last thing first. There is a day coming where we will be home with Jesus Christ. There is a day coming when all of these troubles, when all of these struggles, when all of the sin, when all of the shame, when all of the guilt, when everything that we've experienced in this life, listen, that pulls us away from enjoying the good life that God has given to us, listen, that will one day be gone. We will be home with our Savior and with our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we march through this life, listen, we keep the promised land in front of us. We remember, listen, that as we wrestle through this life, sometimes in pain and hardship, we are bound for glory, amen? There is a day coming when we will set our eyes upon Jesus Christ, and it'll be worth it to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's sing together in response to our Lord and Savior.